Hey, everybody. If you are checking out my Culture Pop podcast for the first time, maybe you heard one of the... I'm actually spending money on this show. I, I bought some commercials on the station. I want to give you an idea about what to expect. So my co-host is Sue Kalinsky. She was a stand-up comic for like 20 years, and she's now a producer. She worked on the very first modern day reality TV show, The Osbournes, and has done a bunch of stuff since then. So we usually start the show kind of loose, kind of funny. If you're a Mason and Ireland fan, there is definitely going to be Steve Mason bonus material here, stuff I would never say on the radio. Uh, then we always get to a cool guest. We've got almost 160 episodes you can check out. And you can hear everybody from O'Shea Jackson Jr., to Jay Leno, people like uh, Paul Reiser, Charlie Cox, who plays Daredevil, Brian Cranston, uh, my buddy, uh, Susie Essman from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Andy Richter, LA legend Danny Trejo, and on and on and on. There is a podcast where I interview John Ireland, and we get pretty deep, and one where John Ireland interviews me, and we get pretty deep. Uh, and we also talk to filmmakers, including... On this show you're listening to right now, Tim and Trevor White are the producers of King Richard, starring Will Smith, and they talk about the making of the movie, how they got Venus and Serena involved, how they did it without ever talking to Richard Williams himself, all that stuff. So there is always great stuff here. Take a minute, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, and I promise we'll keep making funny, smart, interesting shows. Uh, so now, here is the Culture Pop Podcast. Welcome to the world of Culture Pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinske. Culture. Comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends. Pop. Pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with my dear friend, Sue Kalinske. Sue Baloo, what is up? Oh, man. Um, there's not really a lot going on, to be honest with you. <laughs> there's right not now a because, lot going on? Well, not right now, because, you know, it's holiday season. Everything is uh, show business is completely shut down. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Anything that I'm working on is, you know, won't really pick up until January. So it's kind of nice. Is it nice? Is it nice? Oh, you know what I want to do? Uh, let's let's do this. Okay. Um, so uh, there are people that are... You know, we've done 156, 157, something like that, episodes of the Culture Pop podcast. And yet there are new people always checking in. So let's let's um, describe our relationship. First of all, uh, Sue and I did Morning Drive at 1027 WNEW in New York back in back in 20 years ago. <laughs> And Sue, what are your recollections of that uh, glorious time? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> you know, for me, it was such a cool gig because I grew up in New York and I grew up listening to WNEW. It was the iconic rock station. And um, you bringing me along, it was the one, I think it was like one of the first it was the only gig i ever got where i didn't have to audition for it yeah you yeah. vouched for me you got the gig you said you wanted to bring me along um and uh and you know it, it was kind of an extension of stand-up in a way you know it was like doing stand-up on the radio 
you know, yeah, no, you stand did, up, stand you up did, well, it was doing radio for me. It was kind of like stand up without having to see the audience. Yeah. Now you did stand up for how long? Um, probably close to 30 years, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, when did you uh, kick it? When did you kick the habit? Um, I stopped doing it full time, probably in 2010, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but you know, I, I started, I, I became a, like a, I started writing for TV, um, probably around 1995, 94, something like okay, that. So, so I stayed, so I stayed in it. Um, I wasn't doing it as much and then completely stopped doing it. I think around 2010. So as I remember it, I was offered the job at 1027 WNEW by a crazy person named Gary Wall. And uh, Gary said, all right, pull together your team. Now, before anything happened, Gary got me on the phone with this guy named Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, are you familiar with his work? I've heard of him. Yeah. So he and, uh, and I, Jimmy and I, talked for on and off for about uh, six months about, hey, this gig and what the show would look like and what it would be like that. And, and Jimmy had already done the man show. And so he was, uh, you know, he had that going on, but was doing mornings at K-Rock, was doing the sports. And uh, Jimmy was unbelievably talented and uh, far, far more talented than I. And he made the right choice. He passed on the gig. And I said, who can I get to work with in New York? And you and I had worked together. Not a lot. We had not worked together a bunch. No, we we did. um I used to do these uh, celebrity golf tournaments Richard Karn hosted up in Seattle. And I think I had done maybe two of them at that point. And then the third one, you came up to do your radio show. You came up by yourself. You were still working with John, yes. but you came up to do it by yourself. And we, we really bonded in the booth. There was a celebrity um, softball game, Mark Harmon, was in the booth with yep. us and Kathy Ladman and I yes. were, were doing color commentary and we just hit it off. And then you, you saw me in the lobby of the hotel and you asked me if I wanted to come on and do your show in the morning, which was at like six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, at, this, at, at this point, me and Ireland were doing mornings at uh, some, I think we were doing mornings at AM 1150, uh, which was uh, at that point, KLAC. No. Yeah. KLAC. Yeah, and like these these um celebrity tournaments, I mean, there were a lot of heavy hitters there, you know. Oh, like yeah. Sammy, Samuel Jackson was there, Josh Charles, um Bill Gates was there. Yeah, Bill Gates you know, was there. A lot, exactly. of, a lot of sports guys. I remember Detlef Shrimp was there. I mean, just a lot of big, big people. And you came over to me and asked me if I wanted to do the show and, and I said, uh, who canceled? Yeah. And, <laughs> and the, said, the answer it, was everybody. Well, no. Well, you didn't say that to me. You said, no, no, I, I want you. And I was like, oh, come on. I mean, out of all the people that are here, you want me? And well, you know, I was a comic, so I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. Um, and and that was it. And after that, you know, I started doing segments on your show. That's right. That's right. And I thought, all right, I've heard enough to cast my lot with this stand-up comic Sue Kalinsky, who I'd really worked with, not a lot. I'd really not work. And I, and I, and, and then basically our lives became completely 
intertwined in New York. And what I remember of this is that I was an unbelievably kind soul and you were challenging to work with at times. What do you remember? Um, I remember to be the exact opposite. See? <laughs> you delusional man. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that was the weird thing too, is that I didn't know you that well. So I didn't know that you had all these demons. <laughs> like, who is this guy? Where's the guy that I met that I like fell in love with? Um, yeah. So that was very challenging. I had a lot of demons at that age. You, you did. You did. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, I was a hard guy to work for. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had a team of people doing the show in Los Angeles. I, I was a challenging guy to work with. And during that time, was when I finally got on the horn with my shrink and worked some stuff out and uh, was uh, diagnosed bipolar and all that stuff. So I eventually worked it out. Uh, but yeah, that was, a, that was a rough gig. You know, though, my mom and not stepdad Leo before the holidays went to New York. And every time somebody goes to New York, I kind of jones for it. I'm like, ah. Oh. You know, it's so cool. Like we went to Costa Rica and on the way back, something we never do, we got car service coming back from the airport just a couple of weeks ago. And um, we, and it made me think, God, you know, when I was in New York, I took car service all over the place. You know, that was such a baller move, right? To get car service. Totally. Um, and, and grabbing cabs and going downtown and, uh, hanging out and partying. I went to see you do stand up. I went to comedy clubs, which was awesome. Spent a lot of time at Caroline's, uh, right in Times Square there, which was fantastic. So even though it was a really rough time, it was a rough gig. The guy we were working with for was totally crazy. He was totally crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't want to say his name, but it rhymes with wary gall. And <laughs> And he was super tough to work for. But as I think back on it, I think of it as a good time. What do oh, you think I, of it as? Oh, I, I do too. I do too. And save for Scott Herman, who was the GM, right? Yeah, he was the GM at that point. Scott was amazing. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was guy. a stand-up guy. He was, um, he was fun. He used to come and sit in on the show sometimes. Um, I remember when I had rescued my dog and, and the dog got lost with the guy bringing him to me. Yes. He and I was like losing it on the air. And I had only, we had only been doing the show for a short period of time. And he was like, you got to keep it together. You got this job here. Um, he, 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 uh, offered concert tickets because we were still doing music. Um, right, right. We were doing like interstitials. And um, he offered concert tickets to anybody who had information about the dog. Um, he was just he was just a sensitive, you know, non-judgmental, cool, cool guy. So, I mean, if we didn't have him, uh, it, it would have been it would have been really tough. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the interstitials thing. So uh, what happened was, if you haven't heard this story, what happened was we go to 1027 WNEW, which was just a legendary rock and roll station, legendary, like first station in America to play the Beatles, like all that kind of stuff. And they had, you know, uh, Scott Muni was one of the DJs there who's, you know, this iconic New York uh, rock and roll DJ who's since passed away. 
Um, and uh, they decided that we were going to switch to, and this was the plan all along, that they were going to phase out rock and roll and that they were going to start FM Talk and we were going to be the morning show. So as we started out, uh, we were doing, as you said, interstitials. We were basically, you know, BSing between records. And ultimately, uh, we killed rock and roll in New York. <laughs> I mean, I remember reading the New York Post and, and, and reading lines akin to that. Like, here's your new morning show. They've killed rock and roll. And so, that, so people kind of hated us when we first started. A lot of people hated us. And a lot of people hated us because Dave Herman was kind of the anchor of the station. And he was also, like Scott Muni, a big deal on, on WNEW. And, um, so we replaced Scott. We, we replaced Dave Herman. Dave Herman, right. And a lot of people were just like, it, it was like, it was shocking to their system. You know, who are these people that come in here? And I mean, even though I was from New York, um, you know, a lot of people didn't know who I was. Uh, he's so, from LA. He's from LA. And it's like, who are these carpet baggers coming here and, <laughs> exactly. and taking over? Um, but you know, and, and then it, and then it was just great. I mean, you know, we really got our groove and, uh, and then we were just, we were doing basically what 97.1 did out here. That's right. right? 97.1 was a great FM talk station out here. And the idea was to bring that to, uh, to New York. And I, I think that our best work was probably after we announced we were leaving. It was. Cause it was like, I don't give a, I, I don't give a rat's ass anymore. You know, we're just going to, we're just going to do the show that we want to do like us, don't like us. And, you know, I learned from that experience that that's really the way to do radio anyway, is to just do your show. Um, and look, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, there's a whole bunch of other radio stations feel free. Uh, and I think that since then, that's the way I've done radio. Uh, you can't please everybody. Um, you can only please, you know, your core audience. And that's what we ended up doing. And I think we announced that we were leaving on January 1st of 2000 or right around there. And we finished up on March the 30th of, uh, of 2000. And the thing I remember is that remember how into the stock market we were? Mm -hmm. We were so into the stuff, like we were doing segments. This was when the market was going wild, the dot-com, you know, pets.com and bathroom.com, all these, all these websites were going public. And I remember that we had invested and we gave investment advice. We had an expert come on, give investment advice. And by the time we got back to LA, I had borrowed on margin and my stock portfolio kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because I was having to pay off the margin. And by the time we got to March the 30th of, uh, of 2000, my stock portfolio was zero. After all that, I had lost every single penny that I had made in New York. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. Wow. So I kind of had to reset my life at that point. And, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, my, my career settled down and I found good gigs and I ended up rejoining Ireland and all that stuff. So it did work out in the end, but, uh, but yeah, I kind of, I was kind of net zero when I came back from New York. Yeah. You know, it really was a shock to the system, um, for me coming back because, you know, I had this great gig for a year and a half and, you know, most of the 
gigs I was doing, you know, I, I had a couple of writing gigs before I left. Um, you know, they last a certain period of time and then you don't know if the show is getting picked up or not. So you go on hiatus and you're unemployed for a while. And to have a year and a half um, full-time work yeah, um, was, I don't think I ever had that in, in, in my show business life up until yeah. then. Because even with stand-up, you know, you're, you're just, you know, you're going gig to gig, you know. Um, so, so coming home is like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, it's like, I'm like, I kind of like a radio person now. Can I get another radio gig? Yeah, right, Uh, right. So, and that was hard, you know, that was hard to do. So Um, I, I said, I've always said that one of the scariest to say, actually Ireland always asked me if you had it to do over again, would you have made the same decision? Because basically I could have stuck in LA and worked with Ireland or I could have gone to New York and made bongo bucks. And ultimately I chose, I chose the money, right? I mean, ultimately, uh, because uh, AM 1150 at that point, which wasn't KLAC, it was some other station. It was, in, it, it was owned by J-Core, iHeart, I don't know who it was. And uh, they had made a really low ball offer. And so I went to New York, but I had, I, if I had it to do over again, I would do exactly the same thing. I would make exactly the same choice, even though it was a rough gig and we'd flame out after a year and a half, I still would have done exactly the same thing. You? Yeah. I mean, it was such a cool opportunity. You know, I had never done radio before. That's right. And, uh, I thought you were a different person. So I was like, oh, I'm going with the fun Steve Mason. Hey, I was both people. <laughs> I was were. I was difficult you, and fun. You were. You were. You. It was kind of a... Uh, you it was had Jekyll like, and Hyde. Yeah, it was Jekyll and Hyde for sure. Yeah. Um, but it was such a great opportunity to do morning radio in New York. What are you kidding? Of yeah, course, I would do it every time. Yeah. And I, I talk about those days all the time. Um, so uh, there's a little background on the show. If you're listening for the first time, there's a little background on the show. And then we always bring cool people on to uh, talk to. And we're going to do that now. One of the best movies of 2021 is King Richard. Hands down. Love the movie. It's the story of Richard Williams, who was the driving force in making his daughters, Venus and Serena, two of the greatest female tennis players in history. Serena, undisputed greatest female tennis player in history, maybe greatest female athlete in history. Uh, The uh, movie stars Will Smith and both Venus and Serena were involved. Our guests are the producers of the film, Trevor and Tim White, and they join us right now. Trevor, Tim, thanks so much for doing this. Of course. We're excited to be here. Thank you for having us, Steve. So were you guys growing up and by the way we absolutely love this movie it's it's one of my favorite movies of the year will smith fantastic i mean absolutely love it were you guys tennis fans when you were growing up well i definitely was and i can tell you the, the sort of the origin um for the movie really growing up i played competitive junior tennis um and um was kind of on the junior circuit venus was a couple of years older than me but i remember seeing you know richard williams there in the stands sort of holding up the signs saying told you so and welcome to the williams show and you know, really i was only you know, 12 or 13 years old then but but and not in the film business obviously at all and really you know didn't even know then sort of unlike trevor that i wanted to do this but 
but I think that was really the, you know, the sort of origin of the idea really. Wow. So, um, when did it come to both of you that you wanted to do this film? Well, well, Tim, you know, so, um, I grew, we both grew up watching tennis, but Tim was such an, a, a big player. It was, it was kind of his whole life. And um, I remember every now and then getting to go watch his junior tournaments with my parents. And, and so we've always grown up around the sport, especially, you know, Tim being fully immersed in it. Um, but then he brought the idea. And Tim, what would you say that was 2014, probably brought the idea in and said, this is a, this is an incredibly fascinating man a really interesting character for us to explore. And at the time we kind of, I'll never forget what Tim said, but you were like, this might be the greatest coaching story in the history of sports. Hmm. And that's where we were like, okay, there might be a movie if we start to explore that. Yeah. And I think we didn't know what the movie was, you know, sort of exactly. Yeah. We just knew that, you know, I think like Trevor said that Richard Williams was really an amazing um, sort of American dream underdog success story a guy with this you know who sort of wrote this um plan and kind of really executed it with sort of everyone laughing in his face and 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 really telling him he was crazy and i think to both um you know to both trevor uh trevor and myself we thought god this is just a um you know it's a story that frankly a lot of people outside of the tennis world didn't really know and even if they even if they knew about Richard Williams sort of roughly they didn't you know I don't think really have an idea for exactly what happened so where does it start i mean do you approach do do you just start the project do you approach venus and serena do you approach richard Will- i mean how how does it even start start with you uh, trevor um, it's a great question. That's kind of the million dollar question. Um, we didn't really know at the time. Um, Tim, you, when, when we first, first kind of said, okay, we're going to go in and explore this, even before we had a writer, Tim, you had written an email. You had somehow managed to get Venus's email address, right? I think her assistant, her assistant, assistant's email. And yeah, we wrote her an email that just basically said, you know, what the idea was and that we would love to do this. You know, obviously she didn't respond to it. It was a, you know, completely cold email. Um, and then I think at that point, you know, Trevor and I looked at each other and sort of thought the only way we're going to ever get something like this off the ground is if we just have a script that's just completely, you know, that's just amazing and sort of undeniable. And for the next couple of years, we sat down with a lot of different writers. And I think in 2017, the fall of 2017, we finally sat down with Zach Balin, who just had the idea right away. Um, and we ended up hiring Zach without any rights, without any sort of permission really yet from the family, just knowing that the plan would be that hopefully Zach would write a script that was so good that, um, you know, people in town and the family and everyone just couldn't ignore it. Um, I think for us, we always dreamed that if the script was good enough, it could attract talent in the likes of a Will Smith. And then we'd be in a very different position to approach the family and, and the Williams sisters when we had a great script 
and you know potentially a movie star or a big time filmmaker at that point. So that was really once we pivoted to that strategy, that became you know what we put down, and it happens very rarely where things actually go to plan, but but this one did. Yeah, and I think a lot of credit, you know, you've got to give to Zach on that, to the writer, Zach Balin, because the truth was, the truth was, if you know, I think if Zach didn't really execute on sort of the promise of the pitch, um, the project would just be a great idea still. But Zach really wrote a script that, you know, it just was quickly passed around town everywhere and and sort of every agent was reading it every studio was reading it we weren't sending it anywhere but it just took on a life of its own and then people started calling venus and serena about it and calling their agents about it and saying hey we read this thing is this real you know do you know about it are you you know connected to this and at that point we were again trying to get in touch with him about it. And um, it sort of came to a head, basically. It, it as a, Trevor said, you know, it's pretty rare that um, that these things sort of work out in the way you hope. But in this time, you know, I think it really did. You know, it's a real testament to you guys and obviously your relationship with, with Venus and Serena, because whenever a story is based on a real on real characters, there's always so much backlash. You know, it's always that, well, it's inspired by their lives. So we've embellished and, you know, you know, you always hear the family getting pissed off at the writers or producers because it's like, well, that really never happened. Um, how involved were the girls when you were doing this together? Yeah, sure. Well, um, so Isha Price, who's their sister, uh, became very involved. She kind of was the you know, these are very busy women. And I think Isha um, was the designated family member who was going to be the, the boots on the ground involved in every aspect of, of the development and production. And she was, and honestly, this movie would be a fraction of, of how great it is, if not for her and kind of that access that she gave us. Um, so you know, Venus and Serena came to set. They they had a voice in it, but um, you know, Isha was on set every day. She was there for all of pre-production. Lindrea Price, their other sister, was in the wardrobe department on set every day. So we really had this kind of family affair going. Um, you know, and Tim and Zach uh, had met with Isha and Orsine multiple times, and then Tim, Zach, and Ray, the director had flown to Florida in pre-production to sit down with Venus. So there was just a lot of conversations happening in the lead up to production. Um, so all of their notes, all of, you know, Serena and Venus's notes sort of all came through Isha really for the most part, except for the moments Trevor and I talked about. Um, but I think, you know, the, the key thing really for us was, you know, I think the fear, because we wanted to involve the family, like to us, that was key. You know, we didn't have enough information. I don't think, you know, to really sort of get under the hood and do the story justice without the family. So we wanted that. And I think the fear was, you know, you sit down with them and they say, okay, like we'll do this, but we want all of this stuff out, you know, and that was the opposite. You know, I think um, they very much 
approached it from sort of the point of view of like, if we're going to do this, then let's make this, let's make this, you know, really authentic and let's really tell, you know, the true story. And I think from that, we got so many anecdotes and sort of little bits of information and actual scenes, you know, that I think we would never have had um, without their involvement. So how involved was, uh, was Richard Williams himself uh, involved in the process? You know, Richard wasn't involved in the process directly with us at all. You know, we assume he, you know, talked to Isha. Um, you know, really, Isha was the proxy for sort of everyone in the family at the end of the day. So everything that kind of was coming from the family was coming through Isha, basically. But was it weird not to go to sort of this? I mean, this the story is his story. Yeah. And was it weird to do the story without actually dealing with him directly? You know, I think the way we sort of looked at it was we're going to go to Isha, Venus, and Serena um, and just sort of really let them dictate the, the process, basically. And whatever they want us to do, we'll do, you know? And I think that was kind of the key for us was just kind of having the relevant to access and information, which we, we got from them. But, you know, in this case, we really sort of let them um, control the process basically. And um, the way they wanted to sort of work with their dad. What, what did it feel like sitting in, wherever you screened it for the first time with the family, what, what, how, how does that feel? <laughs> the anticipation? Yeah, it's, it's a, well, what's interesting is, um, Tim we and I were saw there the first time. Well, oh, you Tim weren't I, there. Tim we and were I were waiting anxiously for a response. Well, that was for Venus and Serena. Uh, we were there the first time with Isha. We all watched the first cut together. And so that was an, we have our own nerves in that first cut always. Cause you're just, is there a good movie here? Is there a salvageable movie, salvageable movie, or is there an amazing movie here? Uh, or is it a clunker? You know, these are all the questions you go into it. Um, but Isha was sitting, you know, right next to, to me and Tim and, and, um, I could tell Ray was kind of nervously bouncing his leg in the background right behind us, uh, during the whole screening. But, you know, what's amazing is, um, the movie in that first cut is not far off from the movie mm. that you guys have seen. Um, so we all felt pretty great coming out of it. And I know we were holding our breath for Isha, but Isha, you know, was wiping wow. away tears and just, I think, you know, she had some, some thoughts, but it was all kind of minor stuff, but yeah, to, to point out what Tim said, I mean, I think we were all, we all knew when Venus and Serena were seeing mm. it and or scene and, um, you know, everyone involved in the production will, we all were on standby, just like, you know, what's that response? We knew when it was happening and um, the studio had rented out a theater in Palm Beach to show it to them, basically. Um, and uh, we sat there. It was a long two and a half hours of just, um, you know, because I think it's it's one thing to sign on to a movie and say, you know, okay, we're going to support this and to offer your input, you know, to 
read a script, but you know, it's another thing to actually see your life sort of depicted on screen. And, um, you know, I can imagine it would just be hard to watch, you know? So we were anxious, but they came out of it and they loved it. Um, and, um, I think, you know, it was definitely great to hear. So Will Smith is so good in this uh, movie. I'm a member in good standing of SAG after, and I can tell you right now, he gets my vote for best actor. I thought the performance of a, of, of a lifetime, most memorable performance of his career. Uh, does the movie happen without Will Smith being attacked? I mean, it's a star driven business. Does it happen without Will? You know, I mean, look, you know, um, the script was a great script. The idea was a great idea. You know, for us, Will was the top choice out of the gates. You know, he was our, our number one person in mind. We developed it with him in mind. So luckily we never had to go down that road, which is rare, but you know, it's hard to imagine it happening in the way that it did without Will. And it's hard to imagine it being nearly as good without Will. So well, that's the thing I was going to say. I, I do think the movie would have still happened. I think the script was, was so loved uh, around town and there were so many fans of it. Um, but I, I do think it would have looked different. Um, maybe in terms of its size and, and scope that we were able to pull off. But, you know, the thing that people don't know when you just watch footage of Richard or start to, you know, see interviews here or there, I think you see, you start to formulate an opinion in your head. And what I think you often don't see is just how funny Richard is. Um, there's so much humor and not always conscious, you know, he's not always trying to be funny, but there's so much humor in that role. And I think, you know, we just, we knew that Will himself was this larger than life character who very much exuded this aura of positivity and instilling, you know, uh, uh, inspiration in others. And we just thought he captures so many of those elements that Richard had just in being himself. And so, you know, for us, that was always the, the dream. Yeah. And then from the first meeting, you know, that we had with Will, where he sort of, you know, drew upon his own upbringing and his own relationship with his father. And, you know, and, you know, I think also Will very much has sort of his own American dream success story. I think he really, you know, connected to the material um, on, on, you know, another level. So I think, you know, um, it's hard to say, like, you know, in terms of like the actual Hollywood track for the film um, without Will. But one thing I think without a doubt is it's not as good as it is. It's not even close to the movie it is without Will. True. Let me, let me jump in. Did, did Will spend time with Richard or did he watch old video? How did how did Will capture Richard? Yeah. I mean, Will didn't sit with Richard, but Will watched, I think, every... First of all, there are thousands of hours of Richard available uh, out there. I mean, the guy did a lot of interviews. He had a lot... <laughs> he had a lot of... You know, his video camera, as you saw in the movie, was with him all the time. So... 
there was so much footage to kind of pull from. Um, and, you know, and Will spoke with all the family members, um, Orsine and, and the girls. And so there was a lot to pull from in formulating that. I think there is a, for a lot of actors in general, sometimes there can be, and I don't, I can't speak to whether this is what Will had, but there can be a danger if you get, you're not trying to replicate them. You're trying to embody kind of the spirit of them without losing your own self in it. And, uh, and, um, so there's always a balance there, but, but, you know, I think Will certainly captured the, the aura of Richard. Oh, absolutely. And his physical life was just, it was uncanny. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, um, you know what, uh, Rick Macy says, the real Rick Macy, um, you know, he, uh, has been so taken by Will's sort of depiction because I think he feels like it just, I mean, even the smallest details of like the way he sort of leans into you in a conversation, the way he's, you know, the way he walks around, I mean, is just, um, is just so spot on. Well, Will, Will talks about, sorry to, to, no, go ahead. But Will Will talks about kind of the moment he found the character is kind of when he discovered this like the physicality of Richard, which is that kind of slightly hunched over shoulders and kind of bearing the weight of the world that he's had to carry for all this time. And he said once he tapped into that and started walking around with that, everything else fell into place. Hmm. What was Richard's reaction to his the betrayal? We don't know yet. You know. We're not sure if he's seen the movie. Um, it's all very mysterious, but um, I think we will. I think he will see it at some point. And, um, you know, the girls don't even know if he's seen it. He has the movie. We just. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, wow. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you guys seem to be the perfect um, producers to do this. You know, you're both brothers, <laughs> you know, doing a story about sisters. And the fact that, um, you know, Tim, you play tennis. Did they know, did they know who you were? I mean, I know you, they were a little bit older than you. Did they know you on oh, the circuit? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't at that level, but, um, you know, and, and honestly, by the time I was, um, well, I mean, the first key thing is they weren't actually on the circuit, you know? Um, so. Right. Oh, right. That's right. Circuit, you know, and like, but, but by the time you know, I was 12, 13, and sort of really getting into it, they were, you know, playing a sort of limited pro tour, um, pro tour schedule then. So, but, you know, I watched tennis all the time and would see Richard there in the stands. And, and it was also, it, it was something that like, you know, I think we all talked about on, in the, junior tennis world was you know can you believe venus and serena williams like you know can you believe how good they are um can you believe richard williams and there was you know he he definitely had a lot of controversy around him and there were were sort of a lot of different points of view and um and i think through sort of our own research on this and zach's research i think it was interesting to sort of see you know what was actually accurate and i think what was really just you know sort of the media kind of crafting a narrative around him but but sue i mean part of i think part of what was challenging because they didn't know us 
I think one of the biggest hurdles that we had was getting them to trust us. You know, they've been approached throughout the years to do stories about them. You know, they've done a couple documentaries and they participate in a couple of things. You know, there was the HBO being Serena, but you know, to do the movie of this chapter of their lives was, a, was a big deal. And I think you know, they had to know there was a long period of time. It, they didn't just read the script, meet with us once and say, yes, you know, this was drawn out over many, many months. And, and so it was kind of building that trust and understanding how we wanted to tell the story and how involved we wanted them to be. Well, you know, I was thinking, you know, when the movie came out, it's like, oh God, it just seemed like, how come there was, there's never been a scripted version of their lives. And obviously it was never the right story for them. So. Well, that's exactly right. I think what, um, you know, I think to, to Trevor's point, I think what really helped us, um, in sort of, in sort of presenting this to them, you know, was I think that um, we had a really clear way of sort of wanting to do it through Richard and also through a very defined time period. And I think they could really sort of see exactly what that was. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of other times when they have been approached, it's been like, hey, like, you know, we, we'd love to do the Serena Williams movie. What do you think? And it's like, it's like, all right, well, like, what is that it, exactly? It, it could be amazing. I'm sure it would be, but like exactly what's the point of view and what are you doing? I think it was really helpful that we came in with sort of, you know, through Richard and these, you know, 91 to 94, basically. So this movie is going to be nominated for a whole bunch of awards. Um, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen all the movies I've seen, you know, uh, power of the dog and I've seen Belfast and I've seen, and I, I think this movie is totally right there. Do you, do you think about that awards thing? Do you think about, uh, uh, the, the idea that, you know, you're going to be on a red carpet and all that stuff? Uh, you know, I mean, we hear a lot of the discussion about it. Um, you know, I think, and it sounds cliche to say something like this, but say it anyway. I mean, I think Trevor and I both feel like it would just be a really massive honor to be included in something like that and for the movie to be included in that. And I think also just sort of a real, real honor for um, the family to kind of have the story sort of acknowledged in that way. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, but I think Tim and I talked about this actually recently where the, the, the most fulfilling part of all of this conversation is the fact that it's kind of, it is in this new kind of pandemic era where you don't have the like instant, you know, box office returns unless you're Spider-Man. Um, it's kind of, this conversation is the way that says, Hey, audiences really like it. This is fulfilling for people. It's people are moved by it. And I think for us, when you're putting years of your life into something and so much effort goes into it from so many people, it's, that's, what's gratifying. It feels like your work is, is, you know, is working for others and and that's exciting. Yeah. So you're young guys. I mean, and you've done great movie. I love the post. 
Um, Wind River is just uh, that in that year. I don't remember what year that was like my favorite movie of that year. Um, Same year as the post. So you liked it more than the post. Oh, there you go. Ingrid Ingrid goes West. My buddy O'Shea Jackson Jr. Was in that. That's a great sleeper uh, movie. Well, I'm curious from each of you, what was the first movie that made an impression on you that made you say, oh, yeah, I, w- I want to make movies. Start start with you, Trevor. Huh. Well, um, I think, uh, you know, this is a tough question because the, the there's the first one that really made the impression on me um, was probably. Oof, this is really tough. You, you know, I wanted to make movies since I was 10 years old. My mom and dad got me a video camera, a high eight video camera when I was 10 years old for Christmas. And, uh, you know, my mom's our Tim and my mother's a filmmaker as well. She's a documentarian. And, um, and so she just kind of knew my interest in watching her and watching her in her edit room. And so, you know, since I was 10, that's, what I would do. I would play sports, go to school and make movies. Those were like the three things I covered. And, um, you know, I, I remember starting to kind of do like a deep dive, but the movie that just continues to sit with me, it was a little older. I was a little older at the time, but was LA confidential. Oh. That movie for me, I think said, this is why I want to make movies. This is exactly the kind of movie I want to make. And, um, to this day, it's, it's probably number one or two. Oh, it's a classic. Movie paired with the godfather for me is like the greatest movies in my memory yeah um well you know i don't I mean but i think back on the movies that like i you know that like i um enjoyed the most kind of growing up in the 90s like i always think about you know rudy apollo 13 like films that sort of have this like big moment that it doesn't matter if you seem the movie a hundred times you know every time those astronauts break back into the atmosphere you know your, your hands go <laughs> and like, i've um, seen that movie a thousand times and i, I raise my arms every time and that's same it. with rudy i mean like it doesn't matter every time he walk, every time he runs out of that tunnel like and his family goes nuts um and it just it's amazing how how many times so you know i mean i love those two movies i think probably more recently i love Moneyball. yeah mm-hmm. uh, that like that i think you know it, it was nominated for a lot of stuff but i but i still feel like it it didn't get its fair due for what it actually is um and i think I, that was the movie you know the the first time we met with Ray Green about this, that was, you know, the movie he talked about also as kind of a comp. Um, and it was something that, you know, I know Trevor and I were really excited to hear. There's a movie we should comment on because we've, we've become close with the filmmaker of it. We've worked with him, but it's uh, American President oh, by Rob Reiner. Yeah. Yeah. Tim and I have probably seen, that's probably the movie that you and I, Tim, have seen more than any other movie on the planet. Well, I watched it in college. You know, I didn't have a TV in my room freshman year. I just had like a laptop with a DVD player. I watched that movie literally every single night. I just (laughs) 
on and went to bed. Like it's such a good movie. Yeah, it's such a good movie. Yeah, um, it's such an unbelievable script. And I, I always think, especially with the way it is right now, I'd like to live in a world where that's the president, where, right. where we have that sort of ideal of mm-hmm. of politics. It's such an uplifting and uh, an inspirational movie. And yeah, Aaron Sorkin. I mean, Aaron Sorkin. Don't you think Aaron Sorkin. Andrew Shepard. Somebody asked Aaron Sorkin this, and, I, and you know, he, he sort of gave like a an unclear answer. But like, you know, do politicians ever reach out to him and say, "Hey, like, you know, could you write me an Andrew Shepard speech?" Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's like if you know he's out there and just um, and he has someone asked him and. You know, his answer wasn't a no. Like it was a, it was vague and unclear, but it was definitely not a no. There, I feel like there have been times where Obama's given a speech, especially in like debates when he was running against Romney, where I was like, "That feels a little Sorkinish right there." Yeah, I think yeah, he's pulled oh, from from something. Yeah, he had that line at the at the 2012 convention where he said something like, "You know." He said something like, I am the president, you know, and um, it felt very much like Andrew Shepard saying, like, you know, my name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. Yeah. 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 That's so funny. Yeah, I did stand up for a long time and I had a friend um, who was a stand up when Gore was um, he went actually went to college with Gore. Mm -hmm. And then years later, when Gore became vice president, he used to write a lot of his speeches. So yeah, that's cool. help, help him interject a little it. humor in there. That's right. Yeah, confer. I mean, you would. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so we do love all those movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I will say this. If you're looking for a movie while you're jumping around on your streaming services, look for Wind River, which I think is is fantastic. Look for Ingrid Goes West. Uh, and most of all, congratulations on King Richard. It is easily one of my favorite movies of the year. And I think you guys are going to have a good time during award season. It is streaming on HBO Max. Guys, thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you know what? You're our first siblings. No, there you go. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There you have it, Tim, Trevor. We appreciate them doing this. And uh, King Richard, you know, the one thing about King Richard is, and I mentioned I've seen, you know, I think at this point I've seen all the movies that will potentially win best picture. Mm-hmm. This is the one that I had a smile on my face through the entire thing. Um, I saw it in a theater. I had a mask on, so I was smiling under my my mask. Uh, but I, I thought just such a feel-good story, which I loved, which we yeah. need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I was saying to them, I mean, just the fact that they had, you know, the family's blessing and the family was so involved in it. You just know that um, there wasn't anything in it that shouldn't have been in it. Yeah. And Would, Will Smith hands down is going to win best actor. He was so, he was fantastic. He was fantastic. Uh, did you see power of the dog by the way? Yes. So, <laughs> so funny. It's streaming now. Mm-hmm. And my mom and not stepdad Leo saw it. Right. And, completely clueless about what happened, what the ending meant. And it is pretty subtle. I don't want to spoil it here, but it is pretty subtle. Uh, But they both uh, called me on a joint call and said, we don't understand what actually happened in that movie. 
Okay. Now we have talked about this off the air for a long time. Yes. How we have to have the two of them. Yeah, we do. Come on and give us reviews of the movies <laughs> that are going to be nominated. Yeah. Well, we know the Golden Globes. We definitely have to have them on because it's, it's going to be classic. Yeah. No, my mom is a big, I don't get it. Like <laughs> my mom had the greatest review for a movie of all time. Do you remember the movie Gravity? Sure. Okay. So it really is. There's a, it's uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. And it's really just the both of them. Right. And so my mom's review was, I like movies with more people in them. <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't ever go see a, a film of a one man show. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Well, uh, listen, if you are listening right now, maybe for the first time, uh, we would appreciate it if you would on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, hit the subscribe button. We do great stuff here. Uh, it, w- at least one of these comes out every week and we work really hard on it and they're fun and they're interesting. And uh, hopefully you learn something here from cool people. Uh, and uh, the show is brought to you by our friend Jacob Amrani. And Jacob, you know, during uh, the holiday season, there were, you know, because people are so on the roads, going everywhere, family and all that stuff. There have been accidents during the holiday season. And if you are involved in one of those, you want somebody who's been doing this for two decades, actually quarter of a century now, Jacob has been doing this in Los Angeles. And you want somebody who's a pro, you want somebody with experience, you want somebody that will pick up the phone and take your call when you need it the most. And that's Jacob and Ronnie. So remember, any kind of accident, any kind of injury, uh, it's you, it's your kid, it's your wife, it's a friend at work, you want Jacob. 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Called Jacob and Ronnie. Called Jacob. Jacob. All right, a little lag, little lag. Yeah, a little lag. It's okay. But, um, yeah. You get lag in golf. You get lag in in Jacob and Ron. Yeah, if you if you follow the show, you know sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. <laughs> sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. Perfect. Uh, well, uh, Sue, great talking to you. I'll talk to you again very soon. At busy season, award season, so we got a lot of really good stuff coming up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.